Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Welcome to Smarty Pants, the podcast of the American Scholar magazine. I'm your host, Stephanie Bastic, and this is our 20th episode ever. It's been a full year since we launched this harebrained adventure, and we've talked to a lot of people about a lot of things. Domesticated foxes, weird military science, underground art houses, sex and the law, rattlesnakes, and some serious stuff too, like the Kurdish resistance in Rojava, the crisis at Standing Rock, and the most racist county in the United States. Way, way, way too many things to possibly summarize. And today we're going to be talking to an experimental archaeologist and his brewmaster accomplice about how to resurrect ancient ales from their long-forgotten tombs. But before we get into that, I just want to thank everybody who's been on the show for the past year. And I especially want to thank Brian Doyle, who died in May, and who touched us all so much with his words about hummingbirds and hearts. Here he is in an earlier episode this year talking about his favorite movies. My lovely bride uh, teaches art to kids in the hospitals on Friday night. So she doesn't come home till 11 p.m. So from 6 p.m. to 11 p.m. on Friday night, I watch movies with the dog. And the dog is really into westerns and uh, has, I think has a crush on Peter O'Toole, which is disturbing. But first we started with uh, Rin Tin Tin and Lassie movies, movies with dogs. He was not interested. Then we went to westerns, and that's how we get sucked into the world of John Wayne. Brian wrote a lot of essays for The Scholar, including over three years of a column he called Epiphanies. You can read them all on our website, theamericanscholar.org. They're really, really moving. This is also the moment where we'd like to ask you, loyal listeners, what you'd like to hear from Smarty Pants over the next year. Who would you like us to bring to the studio? What are you desperate to learn more about? What weird corner of history or literature or science have we not tapped yet? There's a lot to choose from, and we'd love you to help us. Let us know at podcast at theamericanscholar.org. Anyway, enough about the future. Let's go back to the past, when six-packs were but a dream, and you had to make all your wine and mead and beer yourself. This week, our episode is food and drink-themed. Ever wonder what the first beer tasted like, 
Or what kind of drink was fit for an ancient king? Or when we first started drinking fermented alcoholic beverages at all? If you have a rotten tree with a beehive in it and it falls over and it rains a lot and dilutes the honey, uh, it will start fermenting to mead by itself. So along will come our primitive ancestor, maybe not so primitive because they know how to make these beverages too, and uh, takes a sip and gets the mind-altering reaction and uh, you know, it goes from there. That was Dr. Patrick McGovern, who goes by Dr. Pat. He's gone back in time to figure out the answers to all these questions with some archeology, span some chemistry, and a fair amount of experimentation. Ever run across a mysterious four-pack of beer from Dogfish Head Brewery with a purple label and a golden fingerprint on it? Its name is Midas Touch, and it's a recreation of the beer that an ancient Phrygian king might have drunk, or what everyone else was drinking at his funeral. Dr. Pat is the wizard who took an ancient urn from King Midas's tomb in the middle of the desert, scraped off the residue, and used a whole battery of magical, well, chemical tests to figure out just what was in the bottom of those golden jugs. And this is an ongoing University of Pennsylvania excavation for the last 60 years. Uh, they brought the residues back in 1957, but they had sat for, you know, like 30 or 40 years until we came along and did the analysis. And we got this very strange ingredient, sort of a combination beer, wine, and mead. But Dr. Pat is not a brewmaster. He's an experimental archaeologist. The master brewer is Sam Caligioni, the founder of Dogfish Head Brewery. Sam and Dr. Pat met almost two decades ago at a roasting and toasting event for the beer critic Michael Jackson at the Penn Museum, where Dr. Pat works. Dr. Pat had already done some chemical analysis on those samples from Midas's tomb. He said it was the easiest dig ever, apparently, because he only had to walk upstairs to find a box of well-preserved samples just above his office. And at that fateful dinner, he explained to his audience, including one Sam Caligioni of the new brewery Dogfish Head, that he'd found some really strange combinations of ingredients in the chemical results from those urns. And so at that roasting toasting event, then I got up and just explained this to the microbrewers in the room. And at that particular dinner, uh, a braggot, which is a, a fruit, honey, beer, uh, combination two uh, was served for the dessert. That'd be Sam Caligioni's creation. And uh, it was very, very good. And so the difference between it and the Midas drink, though, was that it had plums instead of grapes. But it, it got me thinking that, you know, Sam was probably the one that could really pull this off. And uh, I'd also been down into Delaware to Buckley's Tavern, which uh, had a shelter pale ale of his, this is in the early days, you know, when there weren't a lot of uh, options for craft brews. And I took a taste of it, I said, well, you know, this is uh, pretty interesting. You know, I, I've been drinking a lot of wine and I like all the aromatic uh, variations of that, but beer can be equally aromatic. And so we had a competition with microbrewers. Uh, I said at the dinner that anybody who wants to come down the next morning at 9 a.m. could, and we had like 20 microbrewers show up, but uh, my my vote has always been with Sam because uh, yeah, I was predisposed, really. At Dogfish, we'd been brewing historic beers before the kismet of, that led us to each other, but we were doing them more sort of medieval or you know, hundreds-of-year-old recipes, not thousands-of-year-old recipes. 
Since they met in 2000, Dr. Pat and Sam Caligioni have gone on to recreate half a dozen ancient ales from just about every continent except Antarctica. Dr. Pat touches on this wild journey in his new book, Ancient Brews, Rediscovered and Recreated. Which, for the brewmasters among you, includes homebrew recipes for making your own ancient beverages. And for those of us who would rather just pick up a six-pack from the store, it also has menu suggestions for what to eat alongside your Egyptian ale, say. And if I may suggest a pairing for this podcast episode, I'd say it's Chateau Jiahu, based on a 9,000-year-old Chinese combination of rice, grapes, barley, and hawthorn. Dr. Pat and Sam were in town recently at a Smithsonian Associates event to do what must be the best book tour ever, because lots of beer samples were involved. They were explaining the process behind resurrecting a beer from an ancient pottery shard, which is a pretty weird idea when you think about it. So, of course, the first question I had to ask Dr. Pat was, where did his idea for reconstructing ancient beverages first come from? Well, basically, it started out with uh, some other Penn people and um, Fritz Maytag at Anchor Steam Brewery out in San Francisco because they, we, we had a, a poem to the beer goddess Ninkazi, and uh, they wanted to do a recreation of that at Anchor Steam, but there was a Penn professor also involved in that. So that's when I got my first notion of how you could do a recreated beverage. Uh, and how useful it could be in trying to understand some of the variables that would be involved. These very strange chemical analyses started coming out that were, you know, mixtures of this and that and herbs and so forth. It just made sense to see uh, if we could do something similar to trying to recreate the Ninkazi beer, uh, but using a different formulation, different techniques, different yeasts and so forth. Already, I was already sort of predisposed to the idea of experimental archaeology being a, a way to understand how ancient people made these beverages. And uh, brewing and winemaking and so forth are very similar to chemistry in a way. So um, you got all these different variables you got to play with, and uh, not just the ingredients, but the processes, heat uh, regimes, and so forth. So it was... Um, uh, a natural thing, I guess, for me just to, to try it. And when was that? Uh, 2000 is the Midas uh, beverage. And that we had the whole reconstruction of the uh, feast, the funerary feast of the king at the Penn Museum in September of that year. And so you were working on the beverage right up until a minute before, and we weren't quite sure. Uh, he, he works under you know, better under pressure, I think. Uh, uh, we weren't quite sure, but the, the main entree based on the chemical analyses inside the food vessels in the tomb, because they had a feast you know, associated with the burial, uh, was a barbecued lamb and lentil stew, very spicy. So we already had that pretty well set because the chef at the Penn Museum, Pamela Horowitz, she was uh, a very excellent uh, interpreter you know, and, and really dug in and you know, like an archaeologist trying to figure out what to do. And then we still had the question of Sam's uh, brew, but that came through with flying colors. So I guess you put a lot into that. Yeah, I mean, so Dr. Pat came down and did the test batch with us, and we, you know, we're talking about uh, ratios and, um, you know, right up till, till the brew day. And I also thought we'd only brew that beer once ever because it was the most expensive beer dogfish had ever brewed. We sourced thyme honey from Italy and 
saffron from India and it's a very expensive beer. And so uh, once we got it brewed, I was like, all right, that was cool for posterity, but we'll probably never brew that again. Um, And then we took it to the dinner and it really was the hit of the entire event, Um, you know, within weeks you know, uh, I went from answering the phone being like, yeah, it was fun. We're never going to brew it again until People Magazine calling me, the Today Show, you know, calling me and going on TV and Dr. Pat getting all kinds of requests to see it come to life again. And I started answering the phone like, yep, we'll have it out in three months, coast to coast. So that's what we eventually did. Wow. At first, it didn't seem like it was going to necessarily take off, but it won lots of uh, tasting awards at the big uh, beer festivals, like Great American Beer Festival. And uh, in fact, I think the first year it won three gold medals mm-hmm. right off the bat. Mm-hmm. And then in subsequent years, it won you know five silver awards and bronzes. And so it's the most awarded of all the dogfish brews at this point. Now, the irony is, you know, the legend is that everything Midas touched turned to gold. <laughs> and... Uh, and then yet, when they discovered his tomb, it just had lamb stew and the residue of beers. But then when we recreated the beer, it earned gold. So, sure. yeah, And also, the, the drinking vessels in the tomb are all made of bronze. But if you clean them up, it's a very high zinc bronze, like a brass. It looks like gold. So maybe people got fooled into thinking that Midas was, you know, wealthier than he really was and, you know, had this touch of gold. But uh, it, it's a great beverage. Yeah, the beer is definitely a true gold. So we know the story with the Midas touch. How would you go about reconstructing something uh, like the Jiahu or the Egyptian ale? Can you talk about an ale that you had to go in a dig on? Chateau Jiahu is fun to talk about how we came to that one in comparison to to Hankett, the Egyptian one we did, because I believe Dr. Pat had more sort of... uh, physical evidence in the case of the Jiahu, whereas we had more historic evidence in the case of the Egyptian beer. So maybe we'll start at the beginning with Jiahu and what what influenced that recipe from your work. Right. Well, I mean, uh, the Jiahu, uh, we had done all kinds of analyses. I went to China about the same time as Midas uh, in 1999-2000, in and I was a Middle Eastern archaeologist, but uh, once I got to China and saw how far, how early the pottery was there, going back 18,000 years, uh, whereas the Near East only goes back 8,000 years, uh, then I got to thinking, well, you know, pottery is what absorbs the ancient organics that we're interested in. So we, we really gave, well, we gave both the residues from the Midas tomb as well as the Jahu, like the, a full blast of all the current scientific uh, techniques that we had. So this is like liquid chromatography for the first time used um, in doing residue analysis with mass uh, spectrometry and gas chromatography and so forth. And for the Jahu beverage, um, we got the very characteristic beeswax compounds that show that honey was probably present because you never can totally filter it out. And then we had the hawthorn fruit, which was really kind of unusual. But then it turned out they started doing archaeobotany at the excavation, and the only seeds of plants that they found were grape and hawthorn. So the chem- we, we got the chemical information first, and then the botanical, you know, corroborated that. And then the, um, uh, the rice, you know, we have very, very early rice, and there are very you know, specific compounds that we were able to show that rice was present. I mean, Jiahu as a site is like the most amazing Neolithic site in China. 
in my estimation. So in the world. Yeah, even in the world, because I mean, it has the earliest playable musical instruments, which are flute, bone flutes that still play classical Chinese music on them. Uh, wow. You know, all these long traditions. It has the tortoise shells with the earliest writing on them, the earliest, you know, domesticated rice, pig, silk. It just goes on and on. So we had a really good body of chemical evidence, in other words, that you know, we could work from. And we had different methods that could have been used. They could have chewed the rice and spit it out and made a fermented beverage that way. They could have uh, sprouted it and make a malt, or they could use what the Chinese developed much later, but you know, everything is pretty early at Yahoo, so you're never quite sure. They would take different microorganisms, grow them on rice, put different special herbs in it to nourish uh, the microorganisms. It's called chu. And that's the way they make rice wine today in China and sake, too. Uh, they use this special um, uh, mixture of microorganisms that also has yeast incorporated into it that they grow on wheat or rice. So if you have all of those different options for how to process just the rice, how do you go about picking one and deciding how you're going to do it? Yeah, so I mean, we try to be as respectful and authentic to the era as possible. Today's beer drinkers um, are relatively adventurous compared to 30, 40 years ago uh, when beer was this sort of monolithic, generic, light lager juggernaut in America. Now with the craft brewing renaissance, people are much more willing to try diverse uh, flavors, which is wonderful. That said, the one liberty we do mostly take when we recreate these ancient ales is we use a single yeast strain that we culture from single cells in our quality lab to really highlight the different ingredients. All these recipes are pre-Louis Pasteur, pre-human you know, understanding of a sterile environment. So in essence, almost every one of them would taste more like a modern lambic. They would have all had some variations of bacteria and wild yeast that fermented them. They weren't straight, you know, clean, single yeast strains. So Dr. Pat gives us this wonderful list of what he's discovered. And then as modern brewers, it's kind of up to us with Dr. Pat's input as well to say, okay, well, what do you think the alcohol by volume might have been? Do you think it would have had some level of filtration, even if it was just through juniper bows? Uh, or would it have been served really kind of chunky style? Uh, would it have been carbonated? Uh, would it have been dark in color from you know, fire roasted grains. So those are some of the decisions that we iterate. And as modern brewers, there is some subjectivity to our creative process with that stuff. But we really want the list of unexpected, exciting indigenous ingredients and how they were combined to shine through. So with Chateau Jiahu, for example, how many versions did it take to discover all the right modern ingredients to combine? How many experiments were there? Uh, we, got, we got a sample of, of this chew this uh, ferment uh, with all the microorganisms from China. I, I had a microbiologist in Beijing who sent us some through his student in Michigan or whatever. So we got a little bit of this. And uh, a fellow brewer at the time at uh, Dogfish Head tried to use it uh, to, to make a, uh, this version of the Jiahu beverage. Unfortunately, it tasted a lot like acetone, <laughs> and uh, that, that experiment didn't go too far. Uh, we talked about chewing, chewing the rice, and it, literally. Uh, literally chewing it like we did later for chicha, and, and it's also tested in for rice in East Asia. 
for marriage ceremonies where women chew it generally and uh, do the spitting out and so forth. Uh, but I was a little reluctant. I thought, well, I mean, we want to get a beverage that's palatable and that people are going, you know, because we all have the same basic sense organs, you know, from 100,000 years ago or from now. So you want to get something that appeals to the senses, even though we have socially conditioned, you know, ideas about what tastes good or we have differences. Uh, we still wanted to, you know, shoot for something. So I sort of discouraged it. I said, well, uh, you think people are going to uh, <laughs> go for the chewing spitting? <laughs> so just to jump on top of that, we did later do a beverage, chicha, that is a Central American beverage, or would it be Central or something? Well, all through the yeah. Americas. It's a generic term for sort of corn-centric beers. So the chewing process is instead of, you know, mashing or, or heat, Human saliva has enzymes present that convert starches to sugar. So that's a way that they learn, I guess, by trial and error to create this, you know, d different versions of alcoholic beverages. What we ended up doing with Jiahu, we did not, as Dr. Pat said, the, the verse version where we tried to use that chew tasted sort of bile-rific. Bile <laughs> and uh, as a nod to geographic significance of the recipe, we did end up using a sake yeast, but it was a pure modern sake yeast culture that we used with sake rice and hawthorn fruit and honey. Right. And then we also used uh, a um, gelatinized rice that had the hulls and the bran still in it. So bran actually is pretty good for you. But, you know, the hulls maybe and other debris, you know, would be caught up in the grinding process, really. Uh, so we tried to, you know, be as authentic as we could about that. But, you know, we don't have special books, you know, or writings that explain this until much later. I mean, the Chinese are very early at explaining some of the, the brews that they have and um, in the processes that were used, you know, some of the earliest records in the world, really. How long did it take to, to get the Jiahu from, like, start to finish? How many how many batches? So, uh, you know, we what we have learned at 22 years at Dogfish Head, and, and we started our brewery with a whole uh, mission of being the first commercial brewery in America focused on brewing the majority of our, our beers, incorporating culinary ingredients. So we very intentionally, when we're brewing with a relatively exotic ingredient, start with a very small batch because we're risking less. And then we you know, change one variable on every brew until we really dial in that recipe. So in the case of Jiahu, it probably went through four or five iterations on the smaller brewing equipment at our brew pub before we loved the recipe enough to extrapolate that recipe up to our, our big brewery for a coast-to-coast -coast, uh, distribution. So how does the process for that beer differ from the Egyptian beer, where you have little archaeological or physical evidence, but more writing or pictures, say? For tahanket, which means bread beer, yeah, we have beautiful illustrations of the process. These are some of the earliest artistic depictions in the world of how uh, beer making took place. And it's uh, especially the one, the earliest one we went on in that program, uh, down into the tomb of T around 2450 BC. You work your way through the courtyards, which also have depictions of force feeding of geese to make foie gras, which is kind of interesting. Egypt. Yeah, wow. <laughs> we got to have a have a, have a, you know foie gras with our tahanket, I think. Uh, and then you get finally to this little room. It's a, it's called. Uh, the storeroom, I think, is just a little narrow room going back in, and at the end of it are these uh, 
colored uh, depictions of the bread and beer making process. With, you know, as a brewer, it was a pretty you know profound moment because you're seeing the earliest human depiction of your livelihood on these walls known to man. And what was super cool is that the uh, the glyph of uh, brewing was synonymous with bread. It mean they didn't differentiate between bread and beer. It was just one thing that you either ate or, or drank, from what I remember. Yeah, but the the words uh, I mean ta hanket ta means bread. And hanket means beer in ancient Egyptian. And there's been a lot of controversy about how much bread is sort of like the Ninkazi beer. You know, bread is put in. Mm-hmm. Or it's like a, a kvass, you know, in Russia where they put rye bread in or whatever. We uh, had an open wood oven, and for tahanket, we made a really crusty bread and crumbled that up into the brew. Another sort of nod towards the historic evidence of the brew in Egypt was we went out into a date farm in the shadows of the pyramids outside Cairo, and we set out these little traps that are filled with a chemical compound that attracts fruit flies during the date harvest period. We just got lucky that we timed it well. And then we trapped these little tiny fruit flies and overnighted them to a sophisticated lab in Belgium where scientists could pull the wild yeast off the little tiny feet of these little fruit flies and isolate the yeast that had the capabilities of fermenting. Um, And then we grew that yeast back up and literally brewed this ancient beer using a single cell organism found in the shadow of the pyramids. And remember that the people that built the pyramids were paid in this local beer. And perhaps this yeast that we you know, found and captured and brewed with is a distant ancestor to the one that fermented the beers that they drank while they made the pyramids. If you want to hear more about these historic grogs, Dr. Pat's new book, Ancient Brews, goes into way more detail about the chemistry and archaeology involved, as well as the other far-fung places that he and Sam have gone, like the reindeer-covered plains of Finland and a pair of Etruscan tombs. It's a very good excuse to drink some very good beer. To wrap up the episode, we're going to pair these fine beverages that we've already discussed with some fine food. Fictional food, that is. We've compiled a list of our favorite food scenes from literature, from the visceral guts of Ulysses to the tongue lashings of T.C. Boyle's food critic in Sari Fugu at theamericanscholar.org. Here's a little taste, forgive me, from the editor of The Scholar, Robert Wilson, and our editorial assistant, Nolani Kirchner. I read The Count of Monte Cristo about 30 years ago to write an introduction for it, for a paperback. And one thing I've just remembered all these years is something about fish in a barrel um, that were transported for long distances for this particular meal that happened outside Paris in the book. So I've been back to review that scene, which is actually called The Dinner, uh, at least in English. And um, part of the challenge of The Dinner was to feed his guests curiosity as well as their appetites. So he managed to get one fish from the Volga outside St. Petersburg and one from a lake near Naples and have them both transported to arrive in time for the same dinner party. 
One fish uh, traveled 12 days in a barrel with uh, river water and herbs and things in it, and another traveled eight days from the shorter distance from Naples. Anyway, they were both served on the same platter, which the Count pointed out to his guests. Um, and this was in the 1830s or something like that, before refrigeration. They were transported alive. They were cooked alive. One was killed with milk and one was killed with wine, according to the Count. And when there was skepticism about whether they had actually arrived alive, he produced the live mate of each fish. He had transported two, in fact, of each, just so he would have a spare in case one of them did expire along the way. Anyway, the dinner also included rare wines from everywhere, um, fruits from the four quarters of the globe, um, uh, birds, rare birds in their plumage. They were served with the plumage still on somehow. And uh, nothing was said about dessert, unfortunately, but they did have coffee afterwards out in the garden. There are no recipes involved and no particular descriptions of their preparation, but it was definitely meant to be a meal that would impress, and it certainly impressed me. So the book that immediately came to mind for me is The Tiger's Wife by Taya Albrecht, um, which is this beautiful, fantastical novel about the Balkan War, but it skips back in time to episodes with the protagonist's grandfather when he um, has these strange encounters with like a deathless man in these villages. Um, and it's, it's all about this granddaughter's connection to her grandfather. They were both doctors, and it spans the countryside of the Balkans during the war-stricken period. Um, so the scene with food that stuck out for me was towards the end of the book, um, where the grandfather encounters the deathless man one-on-one. It's, I, I think, their first conversation, and they just sit down and they have this meal as this town is being ravaged by war basically a last meal of all the seafood that you could possibly imagine. They end up eating John Dory, which is a fish, but they are offered different types of fish. Like, you know, the last lobster of the day has unfortunately been sold out, but there are X, Y, and Z. There's octopus salad, and they end up ordering a meal of fish and golden potatoes stewed with chard, which to me just sounds like the most perfect dinner. And they go on to have this amazing dessert. And if you've never had food from the Balkans, it's just, it's almost Mediterranean, but there's a different spin on it. If you're a lover of seafood and you're a lover of garlic and you're a lover of walnuts and stewed apples, it's, it's just absolutely mouthwatering. <laughs> That's it for Smarty Pants. Thanks for being here for our first year in radio. If you've got feedback or suggestions for us, please email us at podcast at theamericanscholar.org. And maybe you could also give us a little rating on iTunes. It'll help new listeners find us. Thanks to Dr. Pat, Sam Calagione, and the Smithsonian Associates. Our theme music is composed by Nathan Prilliman, and this episode included samples of music composed by Turku and the Nomads of the Silk Road and Gogovsky. That's it for Smarty Pants this week. See you next time. Till then, take care, keep cool, and stay sharp. 
Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.